Read God's Word, Colossians 2, verse 8. This will help some people get in here and get a seat. Colossians 2, verse 8. The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. That thus he set this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Yes. Listen, if, if the kiss of death is any team I cheer for, okay? <laughs> Just tell you straight up, straight up. Hey, uh, 202.4 million Americans watch the Super Bowl. Uh, up 7%, so we know who the Swifties are, right? <laughs> Did you know that for 30 seconds of a commercial, you paid $7 million? That's the most expensive commercials yet. What was your favorite? Actually, don't say it because that'll betray your spirituality. <laughs> The one that I'm a little bummed out about, but if anybody did get the DoorDash one, uh, you know, the, the, anyway, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But I was watching these advertisements, watching these commercials, and thinking, you know, how many advertisements do, do we watch in, in, in a typical day? And so I went on the Google machine, and, and I Googled it, and I asked the Google machine, what's, what's, what's the average number of commercials or ads that, that we see in a day? And so believe it or not, the University of Southern California last year did a study. And they found that people see roughly 5,000 ads per day. On average, children will see 20,000 30-second commercials each year. There are 5.3 trillion display ads shown online every year. And let me just tell you something. If you want to see an ad about a particular thing, just say it out loud. <laughs> they are listening. John Mark Comer in his book, Practicing the Way, writes the following. He says, with the rise of social media empires, and the spooky digital algorithms, these powerful forces now have direct access to the flows of consciousness every time we slide our thumbs across our phones. What we are led to, what we are led to believe are just ads, news links, 
retweets and random digital flotsam are in reality mass behavior modification techniques intentionally designed to influence how we think, feel, believe, shop, vote, and live. To quote the tech philosopher Jérôme Lanier, what might once have been called advertising must now be understood as continuous behavior modification on a titanic scale. Yes. The old song is, we don't need no education. We don't need no mind control because we can get it on our phones. You understand that we live in a world where there are underlying agendas to manipulate us. What seems to be a cool, cute, funny, entertaining reel may actually be what is shaping, conforming, manipulating, and controlling us. Now, I'm not here to have some weird, crazy rally against the man and throw our phones away and burn our TVs. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm telling you is that the reality is is that we are unfortunately more shaped by the world than we want to admit. That there is mass deception in the world. There are those who want to steal from you, who want to kill you, and want to destroy you, the chief of which is the devil. And we as a church today, we can't fall prey. We can't be deceived. And over these next two weeks, we're going to kind of talk about spiritual deception. Today, we're going to talk about more being deceived by the philosophies of this world. And next week, we're going to be talking about being deceived by the religions of this world. It is going to be a fun next two weeks. (laughs) This week is liberalism. Next week is legalism. All right? And the reason why is because as as appropriate and as timeless as these situations are, this is what was happening in the church of Colossae. The same type of manipulation, even though maybe not on a smartphone, was happening in Colossae. Paul here is writing to a young, growing church that was known for faith and love and hope in the gospel. And he's writing to them, trying to vaccinate them from the current of the culture around them. He was trying to help them spot the counterfeit spirituality around them. He wanted to make sure that they understood that Christ is supreme and sufficient above all and that they didn't need to fall to the manipulation or the influence of those around them. And that's why last week we looked at the very heart of the book of Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, in which Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. He's saying that we are called to live in Christ and rooted on Christ and established in Christ. And the hallmark of that is our gratitude to Christ. In other words, we should never get over who Jesus is, and we should never get over what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Amen. Never get over the gospel. The gospel is not just what gets you into heaven, but it helps you live on earth as you go to heaven. So Paul here is addressing those spiritual counterfeits that want to hold us captive. And here's what we're going to learn today is that Paul is warning us not to be captured by the foolishness of the world 
but to be captivated by the fullness of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack that real quick. Number one, don't be captured by the foolishness of this world. Verse eight, see to it. As he's just given this command, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted, established, overflowing with thanksgiving. He says, you gotta watch out. If you take a stand for Christ, you gotta watch out. Every time you say, Jesus is Lord, the devil is out there to destroy you. It's like when we celebrate baptism after baptism here, the one thing I tell them is that there's a devil after the dove. That after you say, Jesus is the Lord of my life, Satan wants to come in and say, oh, really? See to it that no one takes you captive. That no one snatches you away and imprisons you. This is war language. Paul wants us to not be naive, but to understand that there are enemies to the gospel that want to take us captive and hold us in bondage. We have been set free by Jesus Christ, but we are, can be foolish enough to go back into bondage. So Paul is telling us that the world is a very dangerous place. There are those who want to hold believers hostage. And so... As he's using this war language, he's telling us that there's a battle for our heart. There's a battle for your heart. There's a battle for your heart right now. There's a battle for the next generation's heart. There's a battle that's raging, and, and, and the, the battle is really over this question, will your heart be ruled by the truths of the gospel, or will it be ruled by something else? Will the gospel be the northern star in your life, the compass that leads and guides and directs your motivations and behavior, or will something from somewhere else lead and guide and direct you? And reality is, is that people who call themselves believers who come to worship Sunday after Sunday may say they live for Jesus, but are actually in hostile bondage to some other thought. So Paul says, watch out. And then he says, Watch out, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, some of you say, well, there it is. I knew philosophy was of the devil. <laughs> one preacher said, philosophy will tell you more and more about less and less until you know nothing at all. <laughs> but, but philosophy is not evil in and of itself. The, the word here is a compound Greek word, philos, love, sophia, wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. Paul has already told us that, that Jesus Christ is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. And so to love wisdom is to love Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with loving wisdom. Philosophy is not evil in and of itself. And, and, is, and contrary to other popular opinion, the Greeks did not uh, start philosophy. Actually, I would contend that the Hebrews started philosophy. Because the Old Testament is a, a book filled with philosophy. It's filled with wisdom literature, which is biblical philosophy. I mean, the book of Job is a philosophy on suffering. The book of Proverbs is a philosophy on wisdom and foolishness. The book of Ecclesiastes is a philosophy on living and dying. And so Paul here is not condemning philosophy in general. He's condemning a certain kind of philosophy, and he, and he, gives, this, uh, he gives kind of what that is. He's condemning a philosophy that is filled with empty deceit. A philosophy that says it's one thing, but is really something else. A, a philosophy that sounds legit, but it isn't legit. It promises freedom, but it leads to bondage. It tells lies. A philosophy that's a placebo, that looks like medicine, but has no ability to heal your soul. It's empty. 
Because empty philosophy that Paul is saying to not get uh, captured by is a philosophy that says one thing but can't do it. It says that if you do this, you'll get that, but it doesn't come forth because empty philosophy cannot deliver on the one thing you truly need, and that's a right relationship with God. So he says, I want you to watch out for empty philosophy that sounds good but isn't good for you, that promises freedom but leads to bondage because it is based in human tradition. This type of empty philosophy is based on the word of man, not the word of God. It is man-made, man-centric philosophy that attempts to answer every question of divinity and eternity with human reasoning according to popular opinion. Human traditional philosophy is a philosophy that makes us think that we know better than God. It's a philosophy that makes us think that the universe exists for us and is about us. I mean, it makes you and I, the, the, the ego, the, the center of the universe. I mean, and, and this empty, deceitful, humanistic philosophy is what flows through almost every movie, every song, and every television show that we watch nowadays. I mean, think about the movies, the shows, and the songs. They scream that the best way to live, the only authentic way to live is for you to be you. And for you to live out of your truth. And for you to find your true, authentic self and then have the courage to live accordingly. I mean, think of the message of the little mermaid. A mermaid living in her mer world. But always saw herself to be a human. And her dad got in the way. And then when she was finally free, that was her authentic self. That's the world's philosophy. This human-centric philosophy tells us that our identity is found in what we desire. And so if we deny the fulfillment of what we desire, then that's to deny our truest identity. Paul says, you gotta be careful. It sounds good. It sounds really good, but it's not good for you. Because it's according to elemental spirits of this world. Now, we can dive into what exactly Paul means there in the Greek. That is this based on worldly principles. And I think that, yes, I think that 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 probably should be better translated elementary principles of the world. But, But I think at the very heart of the elementary principles of the world is the demonic. That the root of empty, deceitful, humanistic philosophy is the devil himself. That there is an unseen world that affects the world that we see. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, you are so primitive. Why would you think the devil is behind all this? Because he is. C.S. Lewis spoke about two extremes that people take on the demonic. Either A, they believe there is no devil... Or B, they see everything is the devil. And so some will say, well, there's no such thing as the demonic. There's no such thing as the devil. But others will say, well, everything's demonic. Because they'll be driving, they'll be going to get into their car, and their car doesn't start, and they say, the devil did it. And I say, no, the battery's dead. (laughs) So not everything that's bad out there is the devil. Somebody said, well, I woke up with a bad hair day. It's not necessarily the devil that did that. (laughs) 
But I do want you to understand that there are demonic forces that empower evil ideas and make them popular to take people captive. We have an enemy. He's not some cuddly teddy bear. First Peter 5, 8 says that we've got to be sober-minded, we've got to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's smart, he's sophisticated, he's been studying humans for centuries, he knows our weaknesses and our sinful tendencies, and so just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good and it actually may be demonic, but here's how you can tell whether it is demonic or not. He says in verse eight, it's not according to Christ. How you can tell that something is empty, deceitful, humanistic, and demonic is what does it say about Jesus? Does it point to Jesus? Does it diminish from Jesus? And here's the bigger thing. Does it point to the real Jesus or the Jesus of your imagination? Does it promise victory that's void of Jesus or does it add to what Jesus said or does it add to what Jesus did? If it adds to or takes away from Jesus, it is empty, deceitful, and demonic. And you need to know this because there's a ton of stuff out there that sounds good, but it's not good for you. You know, the guiding philosophy of our culture, the new religion in America is what I call the do not judge religion. It's a religion of tolerance and acceptance. The irony is, is that those who preach tolerance are often the most intolerant to anyone who's not as tolerant as they think they are. In the new religion in America, tolerance, some would say that we need to rethink Christianity altogether. And so what they'll say is Jesus was tolerant, and he was. That's the reality. Jesus is, God is the most tolerant of all. And they'll say, well, Christianity is really, should be boiled down to this, that God is love, and God loves you. And I would agree with those things, wouldn't you? But here's where they get it off. The new religion in America says that Jesus really doesn't have an issue with your religion. He doesn't have an issue with your sexual preferences or your gender confusion or your morality or your lifestyle because Jesus in the new religion celebrates everyone. That's adding to Jesus, right? That's diminishing from Jesus. You say, really, here's why that adds or diminishes from Jesus. Because it doesn't take the Jesus of the Bible, it takes the Jesus of your own imagination. Because the Jesus of the Bible is loving, but just as he's loving, he's holy. And just as he's holy, he's righteous. And just as he's righteous, he's wrathful. And we should never pit one attribute of God against another attribute of God. Now, reality is this. The same Jesus who healed the leper, hugged the sinner, and welcomed the broken is the same Jesus who turned over tables and called people to repent. Shane Pruitt wrote the following this week. He says, people didn't yell to crucify Jesus because he was really nice, tolerant, non-judgmental, all-inclusive, and affirming. They yelled to crucify Jesus because he claimed to be God, said that he was the only way, called out sin, and rejected what culture and religion had accepted. Here's the reality, church. Jesus loves the sinful, the broken, and the needy. That's a good moment to say Amen.
Jesus welcomes you just as you are. Amen? Okay, I didn't have to get fixed to get to Jesus. I came wounded and broken and nasty and messed up and sinful. And Jesus didn't cringe at me. He didn't turn from me. He didn't run from me. He ran to me. But he loves me too much to leave me the same way. Because Jesus didn't just wash my feet. He died on the cross for me. And he rose from the dead for me. And the same Jesus who said, come to me, is the same Jesus who says, go and sin no more. But the new religion of tolerance. Tolerance in the new religion says there's nothing wrong in you. There's nothing in you that needs to change. You just be you. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of demons. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of repentance that says there's everything wrong in you and there's everything wrong with you and everything needs to change in you, but you can't change yourself. Only Jesus can. And we have to be careful because there's stuff that sounds really, really good, but it's void of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus loves all. Yes, Jesus calls all. And I'll tell you that there's none so bad that cannot be saved. And there's none so good that need not be saved. But we've got to be careful to not be held captive by the foolishness of this world. But then the second point is we need to be captivated by the fullness of Christ. Now that's one verse. We've got more to go. I want you to note here that as Paul is dealing with the issues of the vain, empty philosophies of the day, he spends one verse describing them, and then he spends multiple other verses pointing us to Jesus. Why? Because the reality is that if you want to spot a counterfeit, you don't focus on the counterfeit, you focus on the real. You focus on the genuine. You focus on Jesus. Now, a lot of us will leave this sermon and say, yeah, there it is. I'm going to go online. I'm going to bash them all, and I'm going to tell them all how bad they are. <laughs> if you leave here mad and thinking that you're going to change the world by tweeting, <laughs> you're a twit. Do not leave here mad over the vain philosophies of this world. Leave here captivated by the beauty and fullness of Jesus. That's why he says in verse 9, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, we read this and we're like, oh, that's cool. Paul is actually saying something to these people that made sense to them that doesn't so much make sense to us. He uses the word fullness. The Greek word is pleroma. Let's say that together, pleroma. Pleroma is the Gnostic view of fullness. That's the Greek word, pleroma. And the Greek philosophers believe that the goal of life is to reach pleroma, to reach fullness. 
So Paul says that you all are listening to empty philosophies according to human tradition that are demonic because you are searching for pleroma. And the Greek philosophers thought that fullness, pleroma, could be found by studying the logos, which is reasoning and rhetoric. And so they would study the philosophers and they would listen and read the ancient books and they would hope that they could reach pleroma. And Paul says, you're looking for pleroma in all the wrong places. Because pleroma is only found in Jesus Christ, the true Logos. Because in him, the whole pleroma dwells. In him, the whole fullness dwells. There is nothing to add to him. He has no rivals. He has no equals. No one can contend with him because he is the head of all rule and authority. So you're searching for pleroma. But Christ is where pleroma is found. And then he says in verse number 10, this is the good part if you're a Christian here in a moment, there's another moment to say amen. (laughs) If you are a Christian, you have pleroma. You have been filled with him. You have Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You have access to everything you're searching for. In Christ, you possess everything you need. Paul says, listen, why would you listen to that garbage? Why would you chase after that junk? You've got everything you need. The philosophers of that day said, well, you need more than Jesus. And Paul says, no, Jesus is all you need. But if you are a Christian, if you have come to Christ, Jesus now fills you with his grace and his presence. You are now the temple of a holy God, yet that is nothing can separate you from his love, that everything you'd ever want and everything that you ever need is found in him. And that's why he takes verses 11 and 15 and unpacks it. And he focuses on the pleroma we have. He focuses on the relationship we have with Jesus. And in seven instances, he says what our union with Christ means. In verses 11 through 15, you'll hear the following. In him, in him, in him, with him, with him, with him, in him. And he's saying that our identity, our eternity, our joy, and our stability are all found in Jesus. The Christian life is figuring out what you got. It's the gift that keeps on giving. That when you have Christ, it changes everything about everything in your life. And so Paul is trying to say this. Oh, stay with me, church. If you are full on Jesus, you will not fall for the junk of this world. You want to know one of the most dangerous things you can ever do? Go to the grocery store hungry. (laughs) Serious. It's a rule in the Brumbach house. It's the 11th commandment. Thou must not go to Publix hungry. (laughs) Or thou will surely die. (laughs) Because what happens is, is if you go to Publix hungry, you end up buying stuff. 
that you never thought you'd, you'd really want. Did you know they have something called chocolate hummus? <laughs> My favorite thing in Publix is the Dutch apple pie. Praise the Lord, amen. <laughs> and every now and again, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the managers of Publix and it becomes $4.99 for a big old pie. Isn't that great? I mean, you come in for toilet paper and you come out with $200 worth of groceries if you come in hungry. Here's what I'm getting at. When you fill your life with Jesus every day, you won't want the junk of this world. I'm telling you. You know the reason why we're full of junk? It's because we're not full of Jesus. We, I told you last week, the Edo diet. Cheeto, Dorito, Oreo diet. That'll kill you. Tastes real good. It's not good for you. Paul says you need to rem remember who you are in him. So then he's going to go and he's going to give some illustrations. And it's going to be some weird illustrations. But, but stay with me. Verse 11 he says this, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Some of you are saying, well, pastor, what does circumcision have to do, have to do with this? <laughs> Ain't no party like a circumcision party. I tell you that right now. <laughs> Somebody, some, some middle schooler in the church to say, what's circumcision? <laughs> I would say Google it, but don't, okay? <laughs> Here's what it is, real quick. Circumcision in the Old Testament was an outward visible symbol of a relationship you had with God. It was an outward visible symbol that said you were a child of God. It was the removal of flesh and the shedding of blood that pointed to a relationship with God. And so Paul here is not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. That's this circumcision made without hands. It's not saying the doctor circumcised without his hands and, hey, watch this, and did it with his feet. I mean, it's not that. It's the spirit. <laughs> it's a spiritual circumcision. I get to do this again, too. Uh, <laughs> spiritual circumcision is when you surrender to Christ, okay? When you give your life to Christ, Christ takes your flesh, the old you, discards it, puts it to death, okay? That's what spiritual circumcision is. But you don't stay dead. Just as Christ, you've been raised to live an abundant life. And so this is really, the, the, the gospel is not bad people becoming better people. The gospel is about dead people becoming living people. And so he's going to illustrate it again, verse 12. Having been, having been buried with him in baptism. So now he takes the Old Testament symbol of a relationship with God, and now he's talking about New Testament, and what's another symbol that represents a relationship with God, and that's baptism. Baptism is an outward visible symbol and it's something that's prescribed in the New Testament. And so that's, listen, all the men said amen, amen. All right? 
And so this idea of baptism is symbolic. Now, baptism was a word already used by the Greeks before the Christians showed up. It's a word that always meant to dunk, to dip, to submerge. The word baptizo never meant to sprinkle. I love cookies and milk. Chips Ahoy cookies, ice cold milk, praise Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to have church in a moment. I do not sprinkle my cookies with milk. I baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The cookie comes under the water, comes out of the water, raised to walk in the newness of life, right? So it's an outward visible symbol of an inward relationship. So when we witness two baptisms today, uh, we ask two questions. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes, we want a public profession of faith. Are you publicly sharing to the world that Jesus is Lord of your life? Yes. And so they say, we say, upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we say, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And in that moment, when you see this, it is a picture that the old you is dead, goes under a watery grave, your sins are washed away, and you're raised to walk in a new life. Now, that doesn't happen in the pool. It's a symbol of what happens. So baptism doesn't cause a relationship. Baptism doesn't give you a new life. It's a symbol of what already happened. Best illustration is something we use here is a wedding ring. Got a wedding ring. This wedding ring is a symbol of a relationship that I have with April Brumback. Now, I will tell you straight up, this ring is not my relationship. It's a picture of it. I, as a kid, I used to think that my mom and dad, because they, they had rings, uh, and my mom, uh, my dad, couldn't take his ring off because he kind of got bigger in life. And you know what I mean? Like it takes the jaws of life to get it off. I mean, seriously, you might as well just, anyway. So, but mom, she would just, and so she would take her ring off as guess. And no, mom, don't take that ring off. You're not married to my dad anymore. And some of you think, well, I wish it was that simple, right? <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. So, <laughs> So the ring is not the relationship. The ring is a picture of it. So what that means is this, is that if I take my ring off and I give it to you, that don't mean you're married to April. Back off, sucker, okay? <laughs> She's mine. No, this ring is just a symbol. And here's the thing. You don't need a ring to be married, but if you refuse to wear a ring, we got problems, right? Baptism doesn't save you, it's a picture that you've already been saved. Baptism doesn't get you in the relationship, it shows that you already have a relationship. And so, that's the next step for, that's the next step for you, is to be baptized. Now some of you say, well pastor, I was baptized as a baby. Great, praise the Lord. But you didn't know Jesus like you know him now. Your parents in faith loved you enough that they in faith said, we want this child to know and have a relationship with Jesus on their own, and so that's what, it's almost like a promise ring. And so some of you, man, pastor, I was baptized as a baby. I love Jesus. I'm good. No, here's the deal. That's a promise ring. You need to put the wedding ring on. So we celebrate baptisms here. And that's what Paul's saying is that, listen, we celebrate this. We celebrate new life. We celebrate resurrected life. We celebrate dead people becoming living people. We celebrate those who are in bondage being delivered. We celebrate that. And the reason why we can celebrate that, he says in verse 11b, it's kind of a weird verse, but stay with me. He says, it's by the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? The crucifixion. Stay with me. Some of you, this may be rough, but stay with me. In the Old Testament, 
Circumcision is the cutting off of a piece of flesh and the shedding of blood. It identified with God's people. But circumcision in the Old Testament was a picture. God loves to paint pictures. And it pointed to what Jesus would do for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus' flesh was ripped off. And on the cross, Jesus shed not a little bit of blood, but a whole lot of blood. On the cross, Jesus would be cut off so we could be brought in. It was a symbol. As Jesus died, we died. As Jesus rose, we rose. And so his death means that we have the forgiveness of our sins, and his resurrection means that we have freedom to live a new life. And that's why verses 13 through 15, which is our Easter sermon, by the way, describes the greater realities of this, that because of Jesus, because of the fullness we have in Christ, our debt is paid, our forgiveness is granted, our enemies have been defeated, and victory is secure. In Jesus Christ, the fullness, you have forgiveness and freedom. But somehow, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our names with him. And under each and every name was a list of every sin we would ever commit. And when the nails went through Jesus' hands and Jesus breathed his last words, it is finished. In that moment, somehow our debt was forgiven and canceled forever. And when Jesus three days later rose from the dead, all of our enemies who mocked us, who laughed at us, who scorned us, who lied to us, each and every one of them are bloodied and naked and defeated by Jesus. And Paul looks at every one of them and he looks at every one of us and says, why would you abandon forgiveness and freedom for cotton candy demonic philosophy? You know why? Because we're stupid. Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us believe lies. And some of you have been telling yourself some big ones. And some of you listening to the world promise you everything in the American dream. And some of you believe the lies that you can live your best life now. And some of you believe the lies that if you live for Jesus, then it's going to be gee whiz and hallelujahs. And some of you think, if I could just affirm people and accept people, that no one will judge me and everyone will like me. And let me tell you something. The world can never offer you what's only found in Jesus. And the best arguments in the world will not give you one ounce of hope. And so how do we counteract the lies of the enemy? The only way to counteract the lies of the enemy is with the truth of Jesus. Because there's gonna be stuff out there that sounds good, but it isn't true. Here's one. The world says you're born that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, you can be born again another way. There's been some controversy in one of the Super Bowl ads. I don't want to get into the weeds of it. But it was a, an ad that was put on by a Christian group who sincerely just wanted, because I've talked to people who are involved in this group, they wanted to start conversations about Jesus and the gospel. It got criticism by both believers and non-believers. 
And I, I don't want to get into it. I don't, I don't want to, we're not, I don't want to do it. I'm grateful for the sentiment. I'll be honest with you. I, I wish it would have shared a little bit more. But there was an alternative. And the reason I'm telling you this is because there was an alternative commercial that was done almost as a response to what I wish would have been shown on television. I want you to watch it. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart. I, I will stand. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? The whole gospel is this, is that Jesus gets us so much, he didn't just wash our feet, he died on the cross for us. And he died on the cross for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for the one who loved us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we are so bad that Jesus had to die, but so loved that he was willing to die. And when you know the good news of Jesus Christ, you don't need anything else. You just need to preach it to yourself over and over again so that you are so full of Jesus that you will not want to listen to the junk of this world. Now, I want to just say as I end, and I'm about to end, don't leave here. Run in your mouth about how bad everybody else is. Leave here, run in your mouth, telling everybody about how good God is to you. And then go out into a world that is lost and dying and tell them how good God will be to them. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. And God, I, I am the first to admit that there are moments that I have been capt captive, been captured by the philosophies and foolishness of this world. And if I'm really honest, God, I allow the world to influence my thinking more than I influence the world. And I ask God that you help us as a church to stand in you, rooted, built up, established in the faith and overflowing with thanksgiving. And God, for anyone who doesn't know you as Savior, who thinks that there's no hope for them, would they see the power of the gospel that Jesus can change and save anybody? And Lord, would no one leave here hopeless, 
but would they know that they can find their hope in you. In Christ, would you be magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, and I wanna give you an opportunity. Maybe as you're hearing a message like this, you've got someone in your life who's struggling. So just everyone stand. And if you wanna come down, we have these areas of prayer up here in the front. If you just wanna pray for people, pray for people in your family, pray for people in your life, pray that God would use you, you can do so.